0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. In 1848, as political movements and events were sweeping Europe and Marx and Engels penned their famous Communist Manifesto, Kierkegaard wrote in a letter, No, politics is not for me. To follow politics, even if only domestic politics, is nowadays an impossibility, for me at any rate. I love to focus my attention on lesser things in which one may sometimes encounter exactly the same. This negation of politics and its negation is the starting point for Bartholomew Ryan with his book Kierkegaard's Indirect Politics, interludes with Lukács, Schmidt, Benjamin, and Adorno, which looks at Kierkegaard's own thinking and its effect on several more explicitly political thinkers. Kierkegaard's own politics are somewhat ambivalent, and one might struggle to fit them onto today's political landscape, but Ryan has a different project in mind. Instead, Kierkegaard's elusiveness, ambiguity, and cultivation of the single individual in all their inner psychological and spiritual richness are shown to be inspiring for thinking politics and history in new ways— In the four figures Ryan looks at, Kierkegaard's presence in all their thinking, both explicit and implicit, emerging with a sophisticated form of inwardness capable of standing against despair, despotism, and reification. Bartholomew Ryan is a philosophy research fellow at the Nova Institute of Philosophy at the Nova University in Lisbon, where he works at the intersection of literature and philosophy. He is co-editor of several books, Fernanda Pessoa, and philosophy, countless lives inhabit us, faces of the self, autobiography, confession, therapy, Nietzsche and Pessoa and Seos, and Nietzsche and the problem of subjectivity. Bartholomew Ryan, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you. Hello.
1: Yeah, I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes. So could you maybe tell listeners just about? Who you are and what your work and research interests tend to be.
0: Um, well, as you said, my name is Bartholomew Ryan. Um, I'm originally from Ireland, Dublin, um, but in the last over the last ten years, I've I've been based in Lisbon, working at the University of Nova, the Lisboa, the University, the New University of Lisbon, as a philosophy researcher. Um, and I did my PhD in Denmark. Um, on a lot of the background to this book, actually, is started and was working there in in Denmark, so between an Norris University and then working at the Kierkegaard Center in Copenhagen. After that, I was four years in Berlin, working at the the Liberal Arts College, European College of Liberal Arts. At the time it was called that, now I think it's called Bard College, Berlin, but I left just before that that change and I went to Lisbon and my main research, I guess, has always been, um, I guess you could call it interdisciplinary, um, mixing the political with the philosophical, the philosophical with the poetic, and um, so dealing uh, comfortably with philosophers, critical theorists, and and writers like James Joyce or um, Fernando Pessoa in Portugal. And um, so... Yeah, and I've written quite a lot on and people like, mostly in, in the kind of the sphere of modernism, so from the end of the 19th century up until World War II, I guess. So yeah, people like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and some of the existentialists and also all this literature that was coming out primarily in Europe. And recently I've been working more on ecological thought, looking at ecological thought through the prism of both poets and philosophers. So I've always enjoyed that crossover, the poetic philosopher and the philosophical poet. We'll probably touch on these themes in this this podcast. So thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, very much looking forward to talking about uh, this book with you. So throughout this book we're going to be talking about, you're trying to develop an indirect politics, largely based off the work of Soren Kierkegaard, who most would likely think of as being largely apolitical. To do this, you have kind of two interwoven threads. On the one hand, you work through the influence of Kierkegaard on some more explicitly political thinkers, Lukacs, Schmidt, Benjamin, and Adorno. And on the other hand, you develop Kierkegaardian ideas of inwardness or his unsettling of certain norms and institutions in a more explicitly political direction. Could you unpack these approaches and what your overall hoping to accomplish with this book
0: yeah that was very well said um yeah it, it was a challenge I was really trying to forge this this new concept indirect politics and I guess the, the title of the book itself um is already quite packed Kierkegaard's indirect politics and then interludes with Lukács Schmidt Benjamin and Adorno and that's really all that in the, in the title is really what I was trying to Unpack, and as you said, this it's kind of it's like a, a, a kind of a two pronged um, um, approach. As you said, looking at Kierkegaard himself and his writings, um, especially the eighteen forty eight, and we'll probably look at that in a moment as well. But the the, the the productivity of that year, and mirroring, of course, what was happening in Europe at the same time, and then. Looking at Kierkegaard's influence as in some of the most radical and kind of pioneering uh, political thinkers of the beginning of the 20th century, uh, from kind of both spectrums, left and right, and how this person shows up uh, prominently um, and sometimes um, trying to hide the the figure uh, amidst their writings. And yet, as you say, Kierkegaard. Would be the first to declare that he is not political, um, and that's how I begin the book by saying uh, I, I I, um, begin with a quote, to the introduction by Kierkegaard himself saying no. Politics is not for me. And that, that. but that sentence really sums up a lot of indirect politics as well, because he says, no, politics is not for me. To follow politics, even if only domestic politics, is nowadays an impossibility for me. Politics is too much for me. I love to focus my attention on lesser things. In which one may sometimes encounter exactly the same. This is a classic Kierkegaard um, statement showing that beginning with a complete negation and ending up saying, "Well, I'm actually doing that anyway." Uh, um, It reminds me of something that Bob Dylan said when he said, "Are you protesting?" And he said, "No, all I do is protest." Um, It's kind of the same idea that a, a writer for Kierkegaard is in its essence, polemical, um, uh, is going against the grain, is is critiquing society. So that's Kierkegaard, once again, being quite ironic and humorous and, and contradictory. And, and that's really part of what indirect politics is. So the title, Indirect Politics, um, is, and the word interludes, are probably the two uh, terms or concepts that are most important in the book that keep coming back again and again. Um, Because of course, indirect is something that we we think of when we hear the name Kierkegaard, famously the indirect communication, famously he's the philosopher who uses over, you know, a dozen pseudonyms to show different ways of existence, famously the aesthetic, ethical or religious spheres of existence and some of the best writings and most famous writings are written under kind of very stylistic and rich, pseudonymous uh, authors, um, with so much to unpack there. So indirect po- communication is something fundamental to War strategy uh, within philosophy. We'll probably have more time to talk about that as well, hopefully. But So the indirect co- politics is something you might say, um, how will I put it? Is to keep that elusiveness, um, because Kierkegaard is is going a roundabout way, and his two his two prototypes or the two figures that he always comes back to and never criticizes, or or Socrates and and Christ, so the the Greek philosopher and the and the the, the Messiah of, of Christianity. So, but they are for him kind of symbolize also and are emblematic of indirect politics, because um, if you think about them, both of them are um not political figures per se um but they they fit what indirect politics could be because i call indirect politics a set of masks so for one if you look at these two figures as kind of political figures both of them are wearing masks per se you have socrates um kind of walking around like a beggar, pretending to not know anything, saying he doesn't know anything yet, seen as the wisest man in Athens. You have Christ also, whose friends are beggars or fishermen, uneducated people, prostitutes, and yet he's the son of God. So they both also speak indirectly. You know, it's Christ speaks in parables to to communicate um, some of his, his fundamental ideas, and with Socrates is the maiotic technique, trying to get the, the the person in the dialogue to 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 find himself or to uncover or unravel or unfold one's own self, and this is the famous Socratic dialogue or Socratic method. So and and they're also martyrs, you know, the, both of them die for the truth, um, the the, kind of the philosopher and the religious sphere. So Kierkegaard um, is really that's kind of the indirect politics. These are the kind of, I guess, the prototypes or the the exemplars, but they're not alone. He also uses a lot of literary figures as well uh, to to put forward his his kind of critical thinking. And and famously in Fear and Trembling, one of his earliest second, I guess, second pseudonymous work, he quotes Richard III um, uh, in a moment. the opening lines of Richard III from Shakespeare and then says there's more to learn from that than all the moral philosophies in the history of philosophy. So there you have again it's different ways of trying to communicate um, a politics and, uh, and to, to kind of to, to, to conclude at least now because we'll go back to, this will come up again and again the indirect politics is kind of what you might say it's displacing disciplinary. Identities, And I say this at the beginning of the book, so it kind of shows that theology is masking politics or law is masking theology or political theory is masking philosophy or psychology is masking literary critical approaches. So it's always kind of in, in between or among things and the refusal of a fixed disciplinary boundary. And wants to dissolve boundaries. And this kind of is hopefully lead on to political praxis, which we see in the four thinkers that come after that. And that's why the word interludes and not dialogues is used. They're not dialogues, but they're literally interludes. And beautifully, it's their interwar thinkers, the, the four thinkers, Schmidt, Lukács, Benjamin, and Adorno. They're the interludes. And I wanted to open up so in the second sphere of a second kind of part of the book is to show these four different interludes from kind of chapters. Um, three, four, and five. Isn't it? No, two, three, four, and five. Going through each of them, showing them as interludes. And so, inter- indirect politics is an interlude, or it's a gap. The word in in, in Danish is spiel, like between the play. Which you know you have this in in musical musicals, the kind of the light entertainment in between the two serious parts of a of a musical production. Let's have the the interlude, or you might have the interlude where, famously, and you might see Shakespeare's Hamlet. The, the funny interlude, the two interludes where they put on the play, or, um, the, the, Hamlet puts on the play to show to his his mother and the new king, but actually the play is a very serious moment where it's showing actually what Hamlet's thinking. This is the murder being enacted through the play. Or later, of course, the graveyard scene when Hamlet meets the, the gravediggers. They could be seen as interludes. The two funniest, probably the funniest part of, of Hamlet is, is by the graveyard and yet it's, it's probably the most existential moment of the, of the play at the same time. So this is just examples of what I'm trying to get at with uh, indirect politics and the interludes with the four other thinkers.
1: Yeah, moving into the book proper, you start with the year 1848, a year that will likely bring to mind Marx and Engels' famous Communist Manifesto and the revolution spreading across Europe at the time. Before getting to Kierkegaard, could you unpack what was going on in the background, particularly in Germany and Denmark, so as to set the stage for Kierkegaard's own intellectual development at this time?
0: Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, 1848 is kind of, it's, it's both um, sim- a symbol and, and a, a very concrete reality of, of hi- history. So all over Europe, um, there, was, there was revolutions happening. I call that chapter, actually, in chapter one, um, I guess, I think I remember, revolution, um, um, 1848, of reaction and, and revolution. So strong reactionary forces are, are re-emerging and emerging. Or being confronted, and also many revolutionary um, forces as well. So, um, how will I put this? Um, Well, in, in 1848, you had over almost 50 areas all over. You couldn't call them countries; many of them were just states. I mean, Germany didn't exist, Italy didn't exist. They were various states. But there was there was the rise of really um, kind of a, a whole liberal movement, mostly mostly bourgeois movement, but also working classes as well. Um, kind of the the quest for. Um, getting rid of the the structures of monarchy and kind of the the birth of nation states kind of coming from the the movement of romanticism from the late kind of 18th century. Um, So suddenly there was this call for more political participation, the freedom of the press, um, economic rights for, for working class, and of course, the rise of, of nationalism. And and the end of absolute monarchy did come about in Denmark in 1848. So this was a, a massive thing. It became, a I guess, it became a, a constitutional monarchy. So the national liberals of Denmark succeeded. Most of the revolutions in 1848 failed, and famously, the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels was, was published that year, the most famous of all communist uh, texts and I mean Marx's most famous angles of Marx, that was published. So there's a great hope, a kind of a call to the revolutions, not only from the bourgeoisie, but the working class. So in in Germany, there was a big revolution in the march and this kind of a call for, again, freedom of the press, freedom of the assembly, but the the conservative aristocracy did defeat them. And most of the the leaders of 1848 across from the Habsburg empire and Romania, sweeping all across Europe, most of them went into exile or prison. Even in Ireland, where I come from, this was the age of the famine, you know, the, the famine, the Irish famine from kind of 45, 46, 47. And um, there were famines all over Europe, not just Ireland. I guess Ireland was the most devastated because it, it almost crippled. The, the country by at least a third. So um, people huge numbers dying, up, they can't really tell, up to a million and up to a million emigrating as well. So Marx and Engels were very aware of this uh, and were writing about that as well. So a lot of this then after 1848, there was a kind of return to reactionism and return to the security of, of certain monarchies. But there had been a great shakeup and it seemed very much as a great symbol Um, for for world affairs and of course there's also just to kind of finish there there's also kind of a conflict between the German states and and Denmark itself in the kind of low the the, called the Schleswig and Holstein areas where because of this new constitutional monarchy Germany were trying to build their own German state and taking them away from Denmark, but Denmark beat them. There was a war going on, um, which Kirchhoff was very aware of, of course, as well. People were dying. It was very, Copenhagen was a small town. You could see the effects of war, but the, the Danes won in 1848, even though the, um, the, the Germans had some, didn't have to align completely with the constitutional monarchy of Denmark. But then later on, not I think in 1864, the Germans retook that area of south kind of south Denmark, and of course, and then a few years later became became the Prussian the Prussian Empire beginning of the Prussian Empire, um, and and Denmark suffered economically during this time. Even though it was like a Pyrrhic victory, when it's, even though it had kind of secured that area, was economically in a very in a difficult state. Saying that during War Kyr- time, Kyrgyz time, it was also the golden age of Danish culture. It was where most of Danes' most famous writers were writing, you know, Hans Christian Andersen was a contemporary of Kierkegaard writing. So even though the the economy was really fragile, it was the end of a monarchy uh, uh, as a full power, Danish culture was was flourishing and Kierkegaard was part of that.
1: Yeah, I'll just add something. Uh, You mentioned the name of the first chapter. It's actually Crossroads of Revolution and Reaction, and that's very important as we work into discussing Kierkegaard. So on that note, you note that 1848 was a remarkably productive year for Kierkegaard himself, although it needs to be put into his own kind of personal context as well. At this time, he's fresh off the infamous Corsair affair, and also around this time, he had been considering ceasing to write and instead was considering pursuing a pr- pastoral appointment with the church, although that obviously didn't pan out. Instead, he ended up hammering out numerous books under a variety of pseudonyms that year, and in Europe this year represents a major turning point in his own thinking. Could you tell us a bit about what was going on at this time for him?
0: Yes, um, 1848 was very important for Kierkegaard as well, we were, through the years, of course, the, the, the period, the, the period of writing between 1842 to 46 was extraordinary as well. I mean, this is the famous from either or to fear and trembling, repetition, philosophical <laughs> fragments, concept of anxiety, the concluding unscientific postscript. I mean, this was extraordinary. This really cemented his, his reputation and his, his ideas um, for posterity. But what happens, enough in 1846 I mean you kind of go back before 1848 is a small little text which is also very well known now didn't have an impact really then like many of his works but it was in the 20th century where it did have an influence on some of the big thinkers of the 20th century that's a literary review or known as two ages in 1846 which was just meant to be a review of a small book but turns into the last kind of 20 30 pages talks about the revolutionary age and the present age, and the present age being the age which he's living through now, which was kind of a shock in a way, because even though the world was a revolution, there was, you know, this was the time of, of Marx and Engels, um, and a growing um, disenchantment, and the birth of very lots of new ideas um, across Europe, and yet were called the present age, the age without passion, the age of reflection, the age, where superficiality is, is being uh, tr- uh, kind of celebrated and level, level, everything's been leveled off into mediocrity. So you see this kind of disdain for the bourgeoisie, the middle class that are almost taking away the kind of grandeur or, or heroic element of, of existential uh, being. And of, of course, that also ties in with his also, his other attack on, on the, the church. So the church being kind of just incorporated into the bourgeois existence as he says if you're if you're danish you're a christian and vice versa there's no there's no battle at all there so this is what he was thinking in 1846 and writing at the same time as you say he thought that was it for him. He had he had done what he needed to do to the point where he thought he was meant to die in 1846 because he was. There was seven children. He was only two of them were left at that stage. Him and his brother, who become a pastor, was a quite a well-known pastor. So here was Kierkegaard thinking, "What will I do next?" And so it, what happens is he does write before 48 a, a formidable work called "Works of Love," where you see this new, uh, a very different kind of Kierkegaard emerging, which is a Kierkegaard community community, looking at love, um, follow a neighbor, and go through various um, sections, kind of meditating on, on St. Paul's in the New Testament, and, and also the large work, work called Upbuilding um, Discourses for Various Spirits, both written under his own name. But then in 48, while all this is happening in the background uh, across Europe and in Denmark, he writes Christian Discourses, which an often overlooked text again under his own name maybe the title puts philosophers off but within that text um, you have an extraordinary dense philosophical um analysis of what it means literally to exist in the face of um the various temptations of contemporary existence and he calls them the, the cares of a coming care sorg um, in german which Heidegger takes on as an important theme in his being in time later in the 20th century, and Heidegger was a very a serious reader of Kierkegaard and the formation of a, as a philosopher, so he would have been very aware of Christian discourses, so it's this kind of uh, very important text that comes out um, in, in, in 1848, but also he writes the point of view, um, looking at the report to history, it's kind of a, a very strange autobiography, it's, it's his ecce homo, <laughs> but um, he withholds most of, of the Publication of that, but writes it analyze, analyzing his own work and how what do pseudonymous works mean. And then forms the, the great, the kind of last great uh, pseudonymous author, Anti Climacus, who is the author of Sickness Unto Death and Practicing Christianity. Again, two extremely polem- polemical. Um, texts, the first might showing you the, the, the sickness, the second one showing the cure. And this is where you see Socrates coming to the forefront of practice Christianity as a figure that's alongside Christ. As he says, We don't need a new republic, we don't need this, we need what we need is a new Socrates. So you see this uh, single individual emerging in a more nuanced and more coherent form as someone that's engaged in society. So it's a paradox or contradiction happening in Kirkport. On one hand, He's now reaching out to the common man or trying to be the common man, but at the same time, using the single individual was quite an isolated, almost aristocratic, uh, demanding figure. So it reminds me all sometimes of of the great 20th century writer James Joyce, who, on the one hand, wants to write books for everybody, you know, for the complete common man. and for the, the, the bourgeois man uh, you are, and woman in both Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, and yet writing in the most difficult experimental language, Finnegan's Wake arguably the most uh, experimental, uh, audacious book in the English language, but yet about a very common, uh, unheroic family. Kirchhoff, of course, is not going as far as, as Joyce, but the point is, he's actually now trying to speak to the common man, but at the same time, the command man, high expectations, and Kierkegaard's audience, of course, are the bourgeoisie. This could be, We could see this as a defense of him later if he's just seen as a bourgeois decadence, but actually Kierkegaard, he's trying to wake up the bourgeoisie. He, they're his target of attack. They really are the the one that he's targeting him himself included you know and um, as he says himself I'm not a writer of my books I'm a reader of my books Um so that's what's happening with him in 1848 uh, and it, there's a just to conclude there there is a very interesting interesting lady around Easter time 1848 in his journals he talks about how he must now um, he must now speak and um, first of all it's about being silent there's almost this kind of I don't it, 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 religiosity going through him at that period. That maybe I I need to, to remain go silent to become that pastor. And there's a period over the Easter oh, Easter break where he becomes silent, but then he comes back out again and says, "I must speak." And th- and we maybe we'll have ch- time or at least to think about for future readers of Kirkwood, this word silence and speaking, which I kind of touch on at the end of the book, but. Just be silent is really to listen, is to, to you know, it's, it's not a, a silence, is an activity, it's just as, as much as prayer is an act of listening. And, from, and in, in the text that he was writing in 1848, called On the Lily in the Field and the Bird in the Air, a very small text, which has three discourses. Joy, it begins with obedience. Obedience is a silence, obedience and joy, and they're interlinked. And it's a very—it's interesting to read that text because there's no mention of any philosophers or, or at all. It's written in a very simple form, but you have this—it's almost a call to living affirmatively. But silence and joy, so silence and obedience are very interconnected. So, Obedience—the etymology of obedience is to listen—the capacity to listen, to listen before an audio, obedecer, um, and you see that much easier in the, in the Danish with the ludihel is the word, lud is sound, ludihel. So it's the soundness, listening to the sound is actually a, the form of obedience. So um, there's a lot going on with the war in 1848 and and very, very productive. And most Christian, practicing Christianity was also written that year, even though he published it in 1850. Um, so there you go. Yeah, jumping. Jimmy- Oh, Sorry, okay. just one last thing. I would say that he published in, in, I think it was July 1848, he published another text on the actress that's so called a Crisis and a Christ in the Life of an Actress. And it's kind of uh, under another um, pseudonym, which is important to this book called Inter, Eight, Inter, Literally Between and Between. And that was published alongside um, an article by someone else on the fate of the working classes right now in 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 denmark and you have this in the pamph in in, in the magazine you have on the one had looking at an actress a very a very real actress who admired dearly and the idea of transformation that she goes on to play um juliet for the second time and how she plays it better the second time and this great kind of last great aesthetic essay by Kierkegaard under the name Inter Inter, published in 1848 as well. So it's important, to, which I use as a motto for the beginning of the book um, on restlessness and the infin- infinite infinity of restlessness.
1: Yeah. So jumping off of that and moving into the interludes, the first one you discuss is uh, George Lukács. And in this chapter on him, you explore kind of a trajectory he goes along throughout his life. Uh, But I think it's worth starting with his early writings like Soul and Form, Theory of the Novel, History and Class Consciousness. And here Lukács is very much in dialogue with Kierkegaard on the value of inwardness, reflection and cultivation of the inner life in what they refer to as the Faustian man. Um, and at this point, Lukács argues this is all important for a life of militant political engagement. Uh, could you speak to what he's drawing from Kierkegaard here and how he sees inwardness as a foundation for political life?
0: Yes, the, the story of, of Georg and Lukács is, is fascinating, to say the least. Uh, to, to, um, a 20th century story, but he is one of the first international writers to uh, publish seriously on, on reflections on on Kierkegaard in in Solan form, which was published, I think, the the, the 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 German version in 1911. He wrote in Hungarian and in German, and a small collection of essays where you you see Lukacs, uh, famously known as kind of the, the romantic, anti-capitalist phase. So he 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 comes from a very a very upper-class background, uh, Jewish-Hungarian, and he hasn't yet discovered um, Marx, but he um, is immersed in Ibsen and and Kierkegaard and later uh, Nietzsche and later Dostoevsky, and he talks about the foundry of Form Upon Life. He was very drawn to Kierkegaard in this early essay, looking at, and I don't think that ever leaves him actually, he sees Kierkegaard as trying to kind of combine, bringing together both thought and action or the gesture and the form, what happens with the gesture. And in this in this essay he sees this kind of great honesty in in Kierkegaard, um, an existential honesty, how to live and kind of this is again very much pre, pre-Heidegger, pre-Sartre, where Lukács and stolen form is very much right, kind of carving out these existential themes in, in in the very first decade of the 20th century via Kierkegaard, and that's where he was very drawn to him. And later in theory of the novel, which is kind of it was written during World War One, so dramatic things happening, especially were from where Lukács was. He was in Budapest, and World War One, and the, the, fall, the collapse of the Habsburg Empire the Austro-Hungarian um, Empire was happening. So there was very much uh, turmoil, both in the personal life and the life, political life um, around Lukács. And he was trying to write literally a text for a he of, a, was a Kierkegaardian critique of Hegel um, and looking at the disintegration of forms and how Kierkegaard had somehow tapped into this fragmentation of, of modern society and, and leaving over, open, open a gap. But he was starting to move away from Kierkegaard as he got further into reading Hegel and looking at Dostoevsky perhaps be able to do a better job than Kierkegaard. And the, the theory of the novel famously ends with Dostoevsky um, and how we must leave the, the age of absolute sinfulness, the age of absolute sinfulness is actually a term by Fichte, um, a contemporary of Hegel, but um, Lukács talked about we must leave now the age of absolute sinfulness, and, and Dostoevsky may be the one, and he was becoming more attracted to the Dostoevsky, especially now the Russian Revolution happened in 1917, and Dostoevsky was somebody who had lived through uh, turmoil and the age revolution, and somehow was seen as a prophet figure for for Lukacs. So, and then of course, famously, Lukacs then makes the leap into um, into Bolshevism and joins the to the shock of all of his friends. I mean, this is a person who studied with Georg Simmel and Max Weber, um, and and for many of them, it was a shock that he had made this leap. And and there's a great, there's a beautiful essay by a um, uh, Hungarian writer um uh, Andre Naji, who writes a small an essay called Abraham the Communist, and that was very um, important for me um, for for writing my own book here. Um, and his kind of his idea or theory is that it was through, you know, Lukacs is the is the Abraham. You know, it's it's through reading Kierkegaard that he was able to make the leap of faith into. Into Marxism and into Bol- to become a Bolshevik member for the rest of his life, you know, and, and stood by it till the end of his life. So, um, that's again the contradictions um, of of within Lukac. And we say the Faustian phase. And um, you could also, looking back now, at the book. And Hamlet is very present in the book, but there's two phases really. There's the Hamlet and the Faust. You know, the Faust is the decisionist moment. You know, the the, the almost the the, the binary is like the either or serving. You know, to have all the 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 riches of the world, but yet give away your soul. And it's kind of this moment of decision, the Faustian moment, or Hamlet, the embodiment of ambiguity and procrastination and and and, and turmoil. So. Um, you have that with with Lukacs and Kierkegaard, and um, this this and, and, and Lukacs talks about him kind of being having two souls, you know, having uh, this conflict within him at the beginning, at uh, the preface, the famous preface, the 1967 preface. It's either in, that, that there's two amazing prefaces, both for the theory of the novel and history and class consciousness, where he's looking back at his. Work And he says in the, in the theory of the novel preface that Kierkegaard was present all the way through theory of the novel. Um, and, he, and he refers to uh, the, him kind of going through that Faustian phase. And the same with Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is a very young man before publishing his first major work. Either or, he wanted to write a book on Faust. Um, but um, someone else got there before him, famously Martinson, a uh, pastor who was kind of his enemy throughout his life. So Faust turns up. Scattered throughout either or in different ways and through the fear and trembling and repetition. So that's kind of the, the initial and formative phase of Lukacs.
1: So moving along through Lukács' life and his work, he eventually has a substantial turn away from Kierkegaard. So where his early work celebrated ambiguity as a starting point for reflection that could lead to praxis, the later Lukács, particularly in The Destruction of Reason, sees this existential ambiguity as a seed of fascism or totalitarianism. So Nietzsche and Heidegger are the primary targets of that book, but Kierkegaard also gets roped in as well as a form of bourgeois intellectual decadence that harbors political dangers, although you argue this both misreads Kierkegaard and drops what was perhaps best in Lukács's early work. Could you speak to this shift?
0: Yeah, it's it's a complicated journey, but again, yeah, I mean, the No doubt that this giant book, The Destruction of Reason, which um, I think it finally sees the light of day in in maybe the the early 50s is quite, but even most of it was written in the late 30s and then early 40s. So of course you have to think of the 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 circumstances under which it was written as well. Um, uh, So yes, you're, you're dead right where kind of the book, the first part of the book shows kind of the the, the figures of bourgeois decadence and kind of the 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 the, the, the prelude to um, explicit fascist thought and th- those those figures are Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, and Nietzsche are the kind of the, the three of the, the pre twentieth century um, kind of the 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 the, kind of the rationalist thinkers um, and of course Lukács Lukac had been bewitched by by Nietzsche and Schopenhauer at the as a very young man, and and moved away from them quite quickly, and then with Kierkegaard it was a more gradual um, process, but it's the it's the kind of um, the the allure of subjectivity and the the this kind of ambiguity that remains within Kierkegaard that Lukas doesn't like, and of course this. Again, closeness with um, sticking with the church and, and a Christian faith that he says still belongs to this kind of bourgeois aestheticism that still exists. To, 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 that said, he still, he still puts up that point where at least Kierkegaard was honest. So he, he manages, even in the destruction of reason, which is a, is a text that literally goes 100% uh, uh, quite viciously at many thinkers, and, and Lukács was writing this through the years of the purges, and what was happening in Stalinist Russia. Um, I mean, Lukács's life was in danger once again. So he's he's in a period where, and it was, it's the the peak of of Nazis Nazism as well. So he has kind of over his shoulder um, Stalin's minions. And so this book is now seen as kind of a, in many ways, kind of a horrible book that uh, compromised famously by Adorno talking later that it was almost a sacrifice of of Lukács's intellect. So we can look at it from that kind of a a product of that period, but there are elements of truth in a way, if you want to see of um, how um, radical left thinkers were thinking about someone like Kierkegaard. that he was a bourgeois thinker and um, he was um um not really um a, so, someone that was was very um vehemently against kind of mass movements famously said that democracy or the people's government was an idea of hell so uh, like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche as well, very conservative. But I always remember what what uh, Karl Marx said about Balzac. Balzac being a monarchist and very bourgeois, um, but also always a defender of conservative aristocratic ideals. And yet, was the greatest writer on on detailed life and existence of of bourgeois working class. And you could learn so much from 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 reading someone like. Balzac. In other words, dialectically, a literary work is not not the simple reproduction of certain ideologies, but a work can have other powers. And Kierkegaard has that same power that there is, of course, on the surface, as I say in the beginning of the book, politics is not for me, but Kierkegaard, of course, on one level is very conservative. He likes the monarchy, he likes things the way they are, But, but the work within Kierkegaard is extremely radical and famously He says, the beginning of either or through pseudonym, everyone wants freedom of speech. The problem is what happened to freedom of thought? So, of course, we're losing the freedom of thought, the freedom of, of, of real thinking, um, and if you look at things like uh, reification in, in Lukács, one of his kind of most famous and greatest moments in, in history and class consciousness, the idea of um, commodifying things, and it's an amazing reading of Lukács of the of, kind of the commodity from the Capital, um, and looking at the alienation it gives us. You could see a Kierkegaardian element in that with Kierkegaard and his analysis of society through Christian discourses and sickness unto death and practicing Christianity. This reification or later the culture industry um, that is analyzed in the dialectic of the enlightenment by, by Adorno and Horkheimer, that within Kierkegaard's um, superficially conservative text is a very radical uh, critique of, of society, which that I would say, that other thinkers like Adorno and Lukács miss in Kierkegaard. Remember in the last year of Kierkegaard's life, he's out in the street um, literally selling his, his own kind of paper, the, the moment. And, and he hasn't lost any of the humor or wit, it's, but it's it's much more direct because he's literally giving away his own writings on the street, but it's, it's directly attacking both church and state. Um, and it shows it's kind of a one man battle. It's not someone that's hiding away from society, which is the kind of picture you get from, from the readings by, by the later uh, Adorno and, and Lukács. And that's where it's missed, that, that part, that kind of community and polemical element from works of love right up until the, the, the moment, until he collapses literally on the street.
1: Uh, So turning from revolution to reaction, you look at Carl Schmitt, who also deeply admired Kierkegaard, although we'll unpack that he had a somewhat selective reading of his work, as you argue. Um, But to start, Schmitt finds some inspiration in his concept of the exception, which can certainly be found in texts like Fear and Trembling. uh, But you also find Schmitt quoting the much quieter and tamer repetition as a source here. Could you give us a sense of what Schmidt is getting out of Kierkegaard's early work
0: here. Yes, I mean the famous. The I look really at three texts um, by, by Schmidt in the, in this book: the um, political romanticism, um, political theology, and the concept of the political. Those three uh, are really what under the radar in this in this in this book. With the concept of the political, which comes out, I think in 1922, the, the end of the first chapter. Um, Kierkegaard has quoted a long quote from repetition and he doesn't mention Kierkegaard by name, he says a Protestant theologian. Um, um, I'm just trying to remember now, the Protestant theologian who who understood the exception with, most, with the most passionate intensity and he, and he goes on to quote, the poet as the exception, there the poet is he who decides on the exception. Of course, famously the, the, the text by Schmidt begins with the sovereign is he who decides on the exception. What Kierkegaard as Constantine Constantius in repetition, it's the poet who decides on the exception. So Schmidt loves that. And Schmidt again is like other um pre- and fascist thinkers of the early 20th century. And this is what really Irrks Lukacs because Lukacs it's funny the early Lukacs and the early for example Heidegger had the same taste they were tapping into the same similar uh, writers like Dostoevsky Nietzsche Kierkegaard they were they were looking at and being inspired so Lukacs really had and the same with the had to turn away from these thinkers because they've been aligned or kind of appropriated by the likes of Schmidt and 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 Heidegger and remember that Schmidt. Was given a positive review. The concept of the political was given a positive view in the late twenties by Lukács, Um this is during the Weimar years. And of course, then um, by the time of the destruction of reason, Schmidt is you know uh, an explicitly fascist thinker. But Schmidt was drawn to Kirchhoff But this kind of element of decisionism—there's no doubt—the either-or, either-or decisionism, the, which the first text of, of the first massive book of the um Eight hundred pages, and literally the, the, the moment of decision—the either or—literally, um, you have you can read Kierkegaard in this kind of almost um, either or decisionism, the resoluteness, and Kierkegaard uses the word reckoning or the accounting. Regenscape, the time of reckoning has to come—the moment of decision. If you make the choice, that's what makes you a concrete human being. And this was very, uh, very stimulating to to people like Carl Schmidt, who then turned it into the political um so and this idea of the friend enemy distinction kind of you can see this either or politics happening in the concept of the political by defining your enemy you understand your own politics and also in the political romanticism text um, you see also that this schmidt's disdain for any form of democracy or parliamentary thinking or assembly he calls them the eternal conversation and kind of hypocritical thinking and he, and he, you can find these this kind of uh disdain in Kierkegaard for the kind of philistine thinking the, the hypocritical dishonest uh use the word clobscape which literally kind of um how would you kind of cleverness kind of clever people um living the kind of calm life and, and, and but thinking they're being, doing something challenging and he he was 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 very much um saw this as the, as the enemy and wanted to show actually no for example christianity said it's crazy to be a christian it's so demanding there's nothing there's nothing of consolation to be a christian rather for example abraham is either the father of faith or he's a madman or he's a murderer you know this is the father of the three major religions of the of 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 kind of the west we have islam Judeo Christian, uh, Judeo and uh, Judaism and, and Christianity, Abraham told to murder his son on top of Mount Moriah. And that text by Kierkegaard is this exceptional moment where we don't know what's going through the, the mind of Abraham, but he has to take that decision. So, when you say about repetition, repetition was published on the same day as, as Fear and Trembling, they both come out at the same time. Is the other text is somebody who's trying to. Trying to lived through life uh, forward and being transformed by that. It's a very complex, very strange text, probably his most literary text and dense and elusive. And it's this idea of overcoming recollection, the kind of Greek recollection and instead repetition. And the word he's very happy about in Danish is gen which literally is taking again. Curiously enough, in Danish, exception is um, teilsen, so literally a, a taking out, but they could be, I was looking at the etymology of the word untailson because it could be un, un is also grace in um, in Danish, so I'm trying to find a Danish friend who will tell me because I didn't talk about the etymology of the word exception, untailson, but it has this kind of relation here to Untelse and Gentelse, so in repetition you have the Untelse, it's easier to see in German it's Ausnaume, so um, taking out, or the, the naming, and interesting that name and take are, come from are the same root in the German language, and with Carl Schmidt later on, uh, there's a, a small little, the appendix to the, the nomos of the earth, he talks about naming and how Naming leads to taking appropriation, distribution, and production, how you, this is how the world, political world, world works. So with being the exception, you can do the exception to the rule, of course. But for of course, someone like Kierkegaard, he's talking about a poet, and that poet within repetition fails in his endeavor. Um, he doesn't actually achieve repetition, but yet the poet can see with passionate intensity. The danger is that Schmidt, um, and um, it kind of politicizes this aesthetic element. Well, with with Kierkegaard, it remains in the aesthetic sphere and he, he keeps moving along. Of course, he, he moves along through his writings on one level, leaping to the ethical phase, but also there's an interpenetration between the different spheres of existence as well. So I think Schmidt simplifies um, or just takes what he wants to take from from, from his, his writer, he calls him his, his, his brother spirit in, in, in spirit in some of his diary entries. But he also says famously, and I can quote that in the book, he says famously to his friend Ernst Junger, the, the writer of Storm and Storm of Steel, the, the famous novel uh, about World War I, he says, such indirect influences which elude any documentation are the strongest and by far the most authentic. And I thought that was very revealing. Um, using the word indirect influences are the ones that can be the most, the most authentic or strongest uh, presence, um, in, in in your work.
1: Yeah, you've been kind of alluding to my next question on Schmidt. So you spend a lot of time in this chapter pointing out how Schmidt tries to take many of. Kierkegaard's ideas further they than they can actually go, which brings out something interesting about Kierkegaard, that while he is interested in poking holes in certain norms and social structures, and while this can be developed into a sort of political praxis, he's not quite as aristocratic as, as has often been assumed. So where Schmidt is interested in a political version of Abraham, who can make exceptional political decisions, Kierkegaard believes in a sort of inner democracy that's open to all. Could you unpack this and speak to the gap here between the two or the problems that emerge from Schmidt's uh, overextension of certain concepts?
0: Well, as I said before, yeah, I mean, Schmidt is, as and you have said it already, that there's the selective reading of Schmidt, it's well and good. What you can do with, with fear and trembling, even with fear and trembling, I think it's wrong headed, but there's an overlook, and the overlooking is also there with with other uh, um, interludes, the, the figures of interludes in the book, is this, yeah, this kind of looking at hu- humanity, which is re- odd to think about with Kierkegaard, who's considered the, the solitary, isolated existentialist, um, but actually the works of love, Christian discourses, practicing Christianity, is looking at this human likeness, this, this element of community that we have, the str- loving the stranger, we see this in, in some of the ethical uh, thinkers of 20th century and Emmanuel Levinas and later in Derrida that within this later Kierkegaard especially that period of 1847-48 is the Kierkegaard trying to uh, carve out a very serious ethical philosophy looking at the kind of the, the that judeo element of the the orphan the the widow and the stranger loving your neighbor is this kind of great um feet um to be able to do we can all love our our family and our love our loved ones but to love the one we will not meet this is the great feat and that's completely on Schmittian. you know there's nothing and and you might say this is outside the political but with again going back to kirkegaard yes it's it's the, the meaning of very existence because kirkegaard is always uh, engaged with Um, his contemporary society remember he might say he's not political he's always writing in the newspapers always reacting to what's going on and yet there's of course the separation of um, religious belief and living in the world of course he wants to make that separation but within his text that separation is always being dissolved so that's the part where and even with Abraham you know this is the problem Abraham remains an elusive thinker I mean he doesn't kill his son, <laughs> um, but he's going to, he makes the, the decision to do this, but it's something that's, it's outside uh, a, a, a system, a, a human system, or outside teleology, and out, so it's, it kind of, it kind of both um, disrupts the Hegelian dialectics, though we can't really understand it, there's a rupture, um, and also it disrupts the coziness of Christian existence, that this is something that we should be very worried about. So. Schmidt again doesn't doesn't see this humanity. This kind of a there is this kind of um, he, and there that there you see the lawyer and the political figure that it's about how to organise the world and 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 using someone like Kierkegaard as a decisionist thinker um, to get things going to stamping out any form of kind of um, political nuance per se. And we see this within in 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 Schmidt's own own writings later, which are phenomenal political works because they do expose the hypocrisies of liberal democracies, but they also um um show a very kind of very sinister element in in the the path where he, he wants to take and takes people like you who are with him.
1: Yeah, moving along to Walter Benjamin, Uh, he shares a lot with Kierkegaard, particularly his skepticism of historical progress and interested in the fragmentary and the marginal, Uh, but a good place to start, I think, would be with their overlap. Um, with their walks through the city. So Kierkegaard famously wandered around Copenhagen, spent a lot of time talking with local residents. Well, Benjamin's largest work, The Unfinished Arcades Project, is an attempt to document and understand the sort of consciousness or subjectivity that a massive city such as Paris might engender. So could you speak to this mutual interest in wandering the city and what they get out of it philosophically?
0: Yes, Walter Benjamin is is almost like the odd man out of the three in a way. Of course, he's very much connected with with all with all of them. I mean, a friend of Adorno, um, knew well of Schmidt and Lukács' works and refers to them. But yet, he is the, the, he fits in with the element in Kirchhoff, which was very important to me as well. Is that almost flaneur idea of the wanderer in the, the city? Of course, Benjamin is inspired about, uh, from these through his writings and readings of uh, Baudelaire um, and is a great reader of of, of the, the French poet, Baudelaire. But yes, this idea of, and, and the word of course in Danish is daoudriever, it's a beautiful word, literally day drifter. Um, or there's another word um, which could be used for this kind of type, type of urban wanderer, loafer, is lediganger, which literally means light. Light goer, light walker, and you have these t- lo- two lovely words in, in the Danish language lediganger and dowdriever, and which how actually dowdriever is translated as um or, or, or loafer or idler at different parts uh, of Kirchhoff's corpus, which is not used that much, but Kirchhoff refers to Socrates as a dowdriever, um, and he refers to himself as a dowdriever in the point of view. And this is of course a great example of the of of modernism of a kind of modernist thinker in the kind of urban environment Kierkegaard. Spending a lot of time, as you say, walking the streets of Copenhagen, small little town. It's nothing like Paris or London, but um, enough for such a vivid and fertile imagination as Kierkegaard to turn it into a metropolis. You know, the, and it's it's significantly Copenhagen means literally Copenhagen, the, the harbor of the market. So if you think of the the commodity fetishism and the the new uh, the market, you have him going through the city, and he was fascinated by people and talking to all kinds of people, um, and seeing the. World as the observer and being the flâneur for someone like Benjamin or or is also someone that's the unrecognizable or the incognito the, the the ironic kind of mask you know pretending to be doing nothing and um, pretending to be just to kind of lay about but actually observing the poet is this kind of uh, urban wanderer seeing from the various multiple perspectives and kind of going back to write about it and it goes back to the opening quote from the this the introduction to this book about politics being not for me, but looking at insignificant discoveries. It's in the insignificant where we can see things. And for someone like Benjamin, it's in the ruins, in the ruins of, of history, um, in the small uh, forgotten stories of, of history where we actually can go in and find um, a, a real kind of insights into, into the history. Um, so with Kierkegaard, again, he's also doing that, even in, in, in the book, uh, Philosophical Fragments, a small book. It's actually, literally, is philosophical crumbs because the Danish word is Smuler or Smule, which literally would be a translation, it's philosophical crumbs, the crumbs of thinking. And it's in that book where there is actual chapter called interlude, and it's almost uh, the most one of the most dense chapters that Cypor ever wrote. So just like an interlude, oh, a moment of of, of respite in this very difficult uh, text that he he's writing. But in that interlude, he goes through almost uh, the history of of time of looking at time through the Greeks onto the Christian conception of time, and it's it's showing his deep philosophical acumen there, but it's an interlude. So yes, they have this idea, mixing the interior with the exterior as flanaires, going from the interiors, and you have lots of examples of this in either or, descriptions of, of places, the names of streets all over. You could learn all about Copenhagen by by reading either or, and the description of places, people, and how they are. And and, and Benjamin, you know, you fast forward to Benjamin's monumental unfinished work, the Arcades Project, collecting and collecting and collecting. And that's very modern, of course. You see this with the great 20th century modern writers back again, Joyce, or um, of course, you have even Dostoevsky in the nineteenth century with St. Petersburg. There's, there's There's an affinity between a city and a writer that's very powerful, even in Portugal here with Fernando Pessoa, if you want to read about Lisbon, you read Pessoa wandering the streets. And it's a very powerful thing to capture the naming of streets and the naming of small place kind of opening up a canvas of a modern world.
1: Moving along with uh, Benjamin, another point of overlap you find between these two is their skepticism of historical progress. So both are skeptical of grand narratives that claim we are now in an enlightened age and are concerned for what this might cover up and close us off from. In Kierkegaard's case, he's concerned that modernity may be drowning out the individual in Benjamin's case, modernity may be covering up the barbarism inherent to civilization. So what do they see here, and what are they trying to salvage from this seemingly unstoppable stream of history?
0: Yeah, but in the case of Kierkegaard, you have, of course, it was most of the, main, the established philosophy there was Hegelian philosophy, even though it kind of would come late, later to, to Denmark. So I always think of Kierkegaard was not Per se, so vehemently against Hegel as more vehemently against the Hegelians or the Danish he- Hegelians, as he says himself. Uh, he says when he he, he, dis- he discovered Schopenhauer literally in his last year and a half of his life. Well, Schopenhauer has, has Schopenhauer has to deal with wind blowers of of call them the he- Hegelian wind blowers. I have to deal with the wind suckers, the ones that are sucking in the Hegelian air into Denmark, and um, and so. Um, what Kierkegaard's great fear was and I was that these kind of abstract philosophies that you know the the genius of Hegel he says even in a footnote in a a note in the diary diary, if if Hegel had written the science of logic and said this was just an experiment and he would have been the greatest thinker of all time but he didn't and as a result he's comical so it's this kind of hubris that he's worried about and that the loss of of, in this case, the single individual, the, the, the inkkelt is the, the Danish word, a specific individual has been lost in abstract, not only in philosophy, but of course it's also happening for Kirchhoff in mass movements. And this is, the, of course, the Industrial Revolution is happening. This is the really where things, it's the birth of, of mass journalism happening, which Kirchhoff was involved and felt victim to at the same time, um, where it's very easy suddenly to find yourself in a very superficial um, place with... Ideas and with um, socio-political activity and even the economy. The beginning of and end of fear and trembling is a, it relates both to the economy and ideas, he says, even in the world of ideas, like in the world of of the economics, there has been a vertical sale of everything. So everything has gone down. And he talks about the age of disintegration um, in 1848, that this is the age of disintegration where everything is collapsed, collapsing. Um, But at the same time, these other forces are coming in to try to control uh, and this quest for a form of totality, which for Benjamin, again, Benjamin is a person that his whole writing is unfinished texts or rejections or looking at the barbarism of history and how um, it has been swallowed up by this kind of motor of history or, and in, of course, in Benjamin's case, it was very, very pertinent as a, a German uh, a German Jew in Berlin uh, in the 1920s and 30s and having, of course, uh, to die prematurely. so. This was the, so Kirchhoff is Hegelian and anti-Hegelian at the same time. There's a very, I mean, he's definitely a child of Hegel. He's using a lot of the tropes of Hegel, and um, he, he loves doing dialectics. But his dialectics, and so does Benjamin, his dialectics is also always faltering. It doesn't come to a whole. The truth is not the whole, per se, uh, as Hegel expressed once upon a time. And um, there's always this kind of collapse um, that that's happening at the same time. So the dialectics is, is is there, but there's this interpenetration of dialectics that is and and you're kind of left in this fragmented element and that's where the single individual comes in with or, and um, it's the single individual that has to express or make that leap famously with kierkegaard or, or to make that decision but it's it, it, philosophy is not going to help you and um, at the end of the day it's it's the active individual that will um, if that makes any sense
1: yeah and that brings us to the fourth and final interlude you have um Turning finally to Adorno, we see a critique of Kierkegaard reminiscent of some of Lukács' later work, Adorno finds Kierkegaard guilty of an inwardness that pulls one into a sort of inescapable labyrinth of self-reflection that is incapable of developing into a substantial political praxis, or as Adorno quoting Benjamin calls it, a petrified primordial landscape. So this is similar to Lukács, um, and we've already talked a bit about this, but what does Adorno spin on this idea? And you argue that he misses is uh something in kierkegaard could you speak to that
0: again adorno is another very uh from my reading uh, of adorno back then um uh, his he has an ambiguous relationship with with kierkegaard and and from my interpretation in the book at least um he is very kierkegaardian in many of the uh, the ways he thinks and um, throughout his 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 adult life. He publishes his book on Kierkegaard, a monograph on Kierkegaard, the construction of the aesthetic in 1933, imagine, um, just when Hitler's coming to power. And again, you have to take this in context. Also, a lot of the the attack on, on Kierkegaard, it's almost an indirect attack on Heidegger. I mean, um, this is 1933, Heidegger's now a card carrying member of, of the Nazi party has become the rector in Freiburg, and here's Adorno, also German but Jewish again, and um, on the other end of the political spe- spectrum. Kierkegaard again, same reason, and, and, and Adorno was always a great admirer of Lukács, till the end, let it be said, but he was disturbed and um, perturbed by by lukacs destruction of region and the and the lukacs kind of journey into realism um, and looking for kind of <clears throat> a narrow narrow view, views of the world after his initial early period writing um that both benjamin and adorno were very much influenced attracted by but with 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 Kierkegaard, yes it's it's the problem of, of he thinks that you're stuck in this um, almost, it, you become paralysed. No, Kierkegaard never leaves the aesthetic realm in a way for Adorno. There, it's almost a fetishization of of inwardness or uh, innerlichkeit in in German that you you never really get out of. And this again is again Adorno showing through the eyes of the Frankfurt School of, or a critical theory that this is remaining, you remain apolitical, you remain ambiguous, uh, you remain cut off, you remain fundamentally bourgeois and without responsibility. So that's more or less the, the problem that that Adorno has with Kierkegaard, but later Adorno, Kierkegaard turns up very positively in, in, in snippets in Adorno's work, and he goes back to, it, to, to Kierkegaard later, looking at works of love and other texts. So even though Adorno is very much turns with and goes with Marx and Hegel, Kierkegaard is still present in, especially in *Minima Moralia, one of probably Adorno's um, most beautiful text uh, written during the war, Reflections on a Damaged Life, *Minima Moralia, where you, when you see Kierkegaard in that text, you see a, a different Kierkegaard than the one that's under critique. And, and in very Kierkegaardian fashion, by writing a whole monograph on Kierkegaard, it's it's a love letter in a way. It's a, it's a farewell to Kierkegaard, and um, so it's it's dense with it's it's a loving critique of Kierkegaard. What I will say is that yes, I remember, uh, I, without repeating myself, just that Adorno doesn't see the the praxis that Kierkegaard actually uh, does engage with. Um, of course, it's a very lonely. Um, praxis that he makes, but the 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 eighteen forty the, the eighteen fifty five praxis, There's no mention of Christian discourses in Adorno's critique, and um, there's very little mention of, of works of love in the construction of the aesthetic. So it's very it's, there's some very superficial parts to the, the reading. What what access he had to Kierkegaard um, at that time um, was was not. Some of it was quite limited. Remember, Kierkegaard's also greatest editor in German at the time was a guy called Immanuel Hirsch, who was part of that generation of Schmidt and Heidegger, very much aligned with the Nazis, a great Kierkegaard scholar, but but editing it in a way that you're presenting Kierkegaard as a very hard-nailed philosopher of decisionism, um, which inspired this generation of of, of thinkers in, in radical theology and philosophy phenomenology in Germany, um, which Adorno did not like. So he's kind of going through these 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 texts uh, of of Hirsch. So that's what Adorno misses. Um, and I tried to show almost turning back on Adorno. Actually, Adorno is is completing what Kirchhoff was trying to do um, a century earlier. Um, in a secular world in a world post christian world with adorno very much involved and showing that through through different texts um like you'll see in his in his, in his aesthetic theory and his his kind of people like samuel beckett or um, with kafka um or Traco, these these favorite writers of adorno which are showing the powerless of existence but he he so he has this he he hates philosophers that try to be uh, artists at the same time, like, so he really goes after someone like Sartre that are doing philosophy. But Kyogor is an ambiguous one because he's not really doing um, either philosophy sometimes or writing literary text. Again we're back to that interlude or indirect politics that's happening. And that's what, something would, that would attract Adorno. Adorno liked these kind of difficult um, things that are hard to classify. That I think still remains with Kierkegaard after all the critique uh, that Adorno does. And in his last two works, Aesthetic Theory and Negative Dialectics, I find Kierkegaard still very much present there. Hegel, Kierkegaard, and Marx are somehow being interwoven in, in Adorno's final works.
1: Yeah, bringing this part of the conversation to a close and picking up something you were alluding to. Tying things off with Adorno and Kierkegaard, you bring forward the question of who, who am I speaking to? Who is the writer here? Who is the reader? Uh, Kierkegaard opens up via his pseudonyms a sort of groundless ground of identities. But it also opens up possibilities for reading and writing as a form of resistance to reification, something Adorno does pick up on. Could you explain what's going on for both thinkers here?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the to whom am I speaking? You see this this question turning up in a few moments um, in in Kierkegaard's work. Um, in 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 sickness unto death, he, there's a moment where he almost gives a, a a very intense definition of what the religious poet is. This kind of paradox. We didn't talk about paradox so much in this podcast. The paradox being fundamental to 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 Kierkegaard's. Writings, the paradox. The thinker without paradox is like the lover without passion. You know, he's uh, famously Johannes Climacus says. But to whom am I speaking? And um, it's when he he's like, who am I speaking? Who is the reader? Or who, who am I speaking before a god, before an entity, or for, before posterity? And again, I I bring in Hamlet here. The very first two words of Hamlet: Who's there? Um, and not only that, so that's the first two, the, the, the question that begins Hamlet, who's there? Nay, speak and stand forth. So it's this kind of, so yeah, this, if you could read dissect um, the beginning of Hamlet, who's there, nay, the negation, and speak and stand and unfold yourself. This, this really, for me, is very, if you read it through Kierkegaardian eyes, this could be a sum up of, of much of what Kierkegaard is trying to do and which eludes, um, any form of capture so um, and I, when I say eluding any form of capture because that's the whole point of Kierkegaard's thought through titles of his books and um, through the use of of different pseudonyms and um, through the kind of um, inter interpenetration of different disciplines within the text themselves and and that's really important. This, this idea of selfhood. And again, another paradox with pure war. It's all about becoming the self, isn't it? Where he'll say the, the purity of uh the purity to will one thing, uh, to try to, to have that selfhood. Um, but at the same time, by doing that, he's creating a kind of a plurality of 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 subjects or a plurality of selfhood that. You know it's almost what the exact opposite, opposite of what he wants to do but that who's there that that listener and again you have these kind of silent elements which we've talked about already you know freighter taciturnus turnus is one of the pseudonyms the, the silent brother who is listening to quidam quidam this is in stages on life's way um which takes up the guilty not guilty at part takes up nearly two-thirds of the book and key which literally the, the whatness um, character is talking, trying to overcome a love affair. He's looking at being a poet, and it's the silent brother that responds. And, and he'll say at the end of that book, after going, trawling through, and not many people read the whole of that book, because it's, it's extremely dense. It's very allegorical, full of various um, literary motifs. And at the end of the book, Frater Taciturnus literally says, who am I speaking to? Who is left? Um, maybe there's nobody left at all and at, at that at that moment you have two or three pages of the finest uh Danish prose you're going to find and then people forget that Kirchhoff is one of the greatest writers in the Danish language where he talks about the, what is um what is this language and he goes through it in very different different forms it's almost he's playing the end because he thinks there's nobody left there uh, and Kirchhoff returning to his beloved Danish language to, to close the book and um, so I'm not answering your question um so directly here, but it's this idea of of the, the the single individual is that one that one reader, that stranger that is himself as well, and opening up to this kind of elusiveness, this almost this negation that um that eludes. I, I I quote from Kirkmore at the end of the book, opening the 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 wound of, of negativity, that somehow there's always this kind of negation that's happening or uh, elusive, and, and that's why I used the motto as well for Moby Dick at the very beginning of the book, um, true places, um, it wasn't on any map, true places uh, never are. It's not the, the, the quote I'm trying to remember, but yeah, it wasn't on any map, true places never are. It's not an accident then that someone like Deleuze uh, and Gattari in their book, A Thousand Plateaus, call Moby Dick the great, the great the masterpiece of becoming. Um, and becoming, or Vorden in Danish, is is a crucial, crucial the um, subject or term in Kierkegaard, the becoming of oneself, but that who's there, which he refers to, also it, come, it comes back to Haman and Herder uh, and these kind of German thinkers that were going against Kant at the time, um, were kind of seen as the irrationalists uh, of the time and the, the time and remained um, close to, to Kierkegaard, especially Haman This kind of, despite everything, what's absent um, is. Is still is what we must kind of enter, you know. And now we're I'm I'm, I'm jumping even further. Another um, famous reader of Kierkegaard is Wittgenstein. So you, who who says, of course, famously, that which we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. And you could read that through a Kierkegaardian light as well. And um, that that to who's who's there. That's the the, the hidden reader, the the hidden speaker, even. Um, is is what's left that like, like something like Hegel or a system cannot capture, cannot capture what is happening with Abraham and, and Isaac as they go up to Mount Moriah for example, um, or what is happening with Hamlet um, as he's just before he makes the decision. So this is the, the element of, of who's there
1: yeah bringing this all to a close so we're currently living in an age of increasing political polarization economic inequality and incoming environmental catastrophe Um, And in a time like that, stepping aside to take some time to read Kierkegaard or a host of related writers can at times seem like a sort of privileged form of bourgeois decadence. Uh, Given everything we've put on the table, what does this attitude miss about the relationship between inwardness and political commitment? Uh, When not reading Marx or Lenin or going to protests, how would you encourage people, especially young people who are finding themselves compelled to get involved politically, uh, how would you encourage them to also think critically about that inner life and the relationship that might have to political engagement?
0: Well, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. Um, and I can see that, And like always, actually, it's not just now, but coming to Kierkegaard, there will be kind of blocks there. You kind of think, oh, Christian thinker, um, 19th century, why should i bother existentialism come on it, you know let's move on so in a superficial approach you you still have these these um i guess blocks that turn up with approaching someone like your war but what, of course like everything when you when you when you dig deeper what's what could be useful or um and i hate the word useful but what could in some way wake us up or um be a kind of a, a kickstart to some kind of engagement would be the element of Kyrgyz war, first, is that again that the the freedom to think, and I think that's very hard. And when he says that we have freedom of speech everywhere, but we don't have the freedom of thought, um, we're losing that 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 talent or freedom for really and um, thinking, thinking critically, um, and thinking in freedom, which I think many young people can can feel that we're all everyone's speaking, but. Um, who is actually really thinking? Um, that's one element. And the nu- nuance, the nuance that's in Kirk War, um that you can see through the various different writings, that I think when we're living in these kind of very quite binary times or times where it's people are afraid to even speak uh, with, with these divisions everywhere, I think Kierkegaard might help us to, to see with more complexity and more nuance in how to live as human beings, and and thirdly, um, what's important as well, I think the element of of this dowdreever is, is 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 crucial. This kind of uh, as a kind of a an act of resistance against um, the age of information, the age of of this kind of um, leveling and, and being attacked by just um, the disaster porn media or the the very serious questions of kind of an apocalyptic feeling of, of of climate change and all these things that. This idea of of being able to slow down—that's which is it, for Kierkegaard—is is taken very seriously. This kind of taking with a with a kind of a. A, a, a pathos of distance, to, 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 quote, to quote Nietzsche, but actually, but still being in 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 society, talking, engaging, um, and and not being swept away by the speed of things. That's why I, I like the, the the painting for the book that I was allowed to use, it's El Hombre Blanco, uh, the 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 Man in White, which is by uh, Fenninger, a German American artist, early twentieth century, who lived in uh Germany and Berlin through those chaotic times of, of the 20s and 30s and finally fled in 1936 because this painting and these art was considered decadent art by the Nazis but there's the, that that's the flan air going through and you can see his shadow in black almost between his legs as well and the, the skyscrapers now look are the, are the new churches so this is the modern world that we're we're living in in the early modernism I don't think I think we can learn a lot from modernism in the 21st century. We're, we're not out of it. Actually, when you parallel the 1920s and 1930s to now the 2020s, 2030s, it's very sad that that could go this way as well, despite all our technology and information and very different world we have, we're have, we living in. We are also living in, a, in an age of hysteria, an age of, of, of growing tensions and various forms of nationalisms as well. Um, and we could go down that road and we're seeing it also in, in politics from the United States to Brazil, to Britain, to Hungary, um, of extreme kind of populist movements taking over and people either feeling completely uh, detached, disillusioned, or remaining ignorant, um, but millions voting for quite uh, monstrous or very irresponsible or clownish leaders. Someone like Kyrgyzko might engage you uh almost chiseling away at your thought with those kind of the, the socratic thinking and the the, the the christ-like figure of 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 society um through through working not being caught in these in these in these kind of frameworks going against the tide um and managing to to speak in, in nuances as well but it's of course it, you have to be in a, in a privileged position to be able to get there at the same time but that's been there um that's the, the paradoxical thing is it was like that with kirk war's period as well even more so of course now supposedly we live in a far more democratic society but we're not using these tools or we're not we don't want to access these tools um and and, and it, t- it takes effort to read someone like your War today which as we know our our minds have been kind of uh, are being are being changed, for good or for bad, we, we have a different way of, of, of using our attention, but Kierkegaard is all about, it's a very close attentive reading with Kierkegaard as well, um, and it helps you, I think when you, it helps to see uh, even going through someone like, you know, Lukács or Adorno or Benjamin, reading them anew as well, and it's really important as a reader, um as Kierkegaard himself, when he quotes uh, a German writer, when a, when a when a monkey looks in, no apostle looks out. So it's, it's the reader uh, brings alive or brings to death the author. And, and that's really important um, with someone like you who are.
1: Yeah. So that brings us to the end of the book. So as a final question, I always like to ask, what, if anything, are you working on now? Or what can we look forward to from you in the future, near or far?
0: Um, well, I'm actually have two small, well, two book projects actually, which are quite different than uh, Kierkegaard's indirect politics. But actually, one is a book on on Joyce, and um, which won't be out for a while because I'm just starting it. James Joyce, the and and looking at kind of um, uh, the philosophy of James Joyce, looking as how we can view Joyce and his works philosophically, and of course he was a great reader of philosophy but how he actually um philosophized and looking at the idea of the art of flourishing and decay in Joyce and that'll be coming out with Oxford University Press hopefully in in in, in this sometime in the future and then I'll be writing a small book on on Fernando Pessoa for a critical live series they're the two books I'm, I'm working on so um, yeah that's that will keep me busy for the next little while
1: yeah, you'll have to come back and discuss them when they're ready. So uh, in the meantime, Bartholomew, Ryan, thank you so much for being with us. Um,
0: Stephen, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's great to be able to, to talk about these themes again.